For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back. I'm Christina Dent, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison. If you haven't subscribed yet, now is a great time to do that, because one of the ways that you can help us is by um, listening to the show and rating it on iTunes. We want more people to be able to find us who are looking for this kind of content, and ratings is one of the ways that we can help them connect. Today, we're thrilled to have Pauline and Fred Rogers from the Reach Foundation. They're actually in the studio with us today to share their story. Pauline and Fred met after they had both come out of prison. They married, and they've dedicated now several decades of their lives to prison ministry and helping others through the Reach Foundation, which they started and run here in Mississippi. Pauline is also a consultant with Clergy for Prison Reform, which is a Mississippi-based criminal justice reform organization. Pauline and Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you, Thank you. So I've never been close um, to prison uh, personally or in my family. So um, I really appreciated when I heard um, Pauline last year at a Clergy for Prison Reform event. And I loved, Pauline, your honesty about what prison is really like. And I wanted to have you um, on the show to help us kind of understand that experience. Um, Mississippi is the third highest incarcerator of people in the nation. So we have so many thousands of families that are infected by that are affected by um, incarceration here. So we want to better understand what that experience is like. Um, Because I don't think when I was growing up and I thought about people in prison, I did not think about the fact that they had families outside. Mm -hmm. I I just kind of just disconnected them Mm -hmm. from a family and community structure. Um, And so that's just something only in recent years I've really thought about and begun to see kind of the how it really affects the whole family, what um, people who are in prison and also their uh, families on the outside. So. Pauline is everywhere. Um, you can friend her on Facebook, Pauline Rogers. You're at conferences, you're at rallies, you're helping people with felonies get voting rights. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, you were with our governor as he signed criminal justice reform law. Um, who has been the most memorable person that you've gotten to meet in your nearly 30 years of work? Well, that's an easy one. You would think it would be the celebrities, the governor, the mayors. But in all honesty, for me, every single criminal that I come in contact with is the most memorable person. It's the one that has caused the most havoc in criminal justice, yet some of them have the answers to the havoc that they're living with. And they are leaders, whether they were a leader that was involved in crime, that crime, that leadership, that leader in them, caused them to do it and that leader in them have the solution to a lot of the problems. So I would say the the criminals that I deal with are the most memorable. That's great. So take us back to the beginning for you. Where did this path start for you? As a child, I was, I, I watched my father get killed by the hands of a family member growing up. I got stuck in that place. I spiraled down. I'm the oldest of 11. And in spiraling down, every, life went on for everybody else. I was still stuck dealing with my own issues of being stuck in that place. And my crime just started to escalate. And my grandmother always told me that it was my responsibility to help my other 10 siblings. And growing in rural Mississippi, Van Cleve, where I was from, Mississippi Gulf Coast, I took that literally. 
where I started taking my siblings to funerals to go to the repast, not to bereave with the bereaved family, but at the repast you could get food. And back then food was containers of food. It wasn't like the prepared boxes today. So I ended up shoplifting. And the first time I got caught shoplifting, uh, a nice police officer handcuffed me and put me in the car, but he didn't take me to jail. He rode around, gave me a pep talk, and then took me home, and then he gave me $7 and told me I didn't have to do that and took me home, but I didn't learn a lesson. I continued shoplifting beyond what the police officer had done for me. Um, and so I ended up in, in prison, uh, multiple uh, criminal shoplifting and landed in prison. But when I got to prison, I guess I kind of stood out like a little butterfly in milk that the officials wanted to know what my story was because I was a church girl. I wasn't mm -hmm. strung out on drugs or anything like that. And when I got in prison, I saw that these people were just like me. You know, they came from home, some of them just like me. And so that's where my um, criminal activity started, but it's also where the ministry started in me because I thought, oh, we got to do something. There were people in there that you never wanted to get out. And there were some in there who were innocent, and but most part, most of them were guilty. I was, but there needed to be some change, and I just wanted to do something to help. And so that's where it started. Fred, where did this start for you? Mm. Well, I probably have a different story because I went to prison when I was 15, and I stayed in prison for almost 16 years, 15 years, 8 months, 23 days. And... By me going to prison at such a young age, I was basically, I grew up in prison. Hmm. Uh, all my young adulthood and my latter teenage years was spent in prison. I became bitter in prison. And I became bitter in prison because it took me a long time to understand how could a 15-year-old, first offense for armed robbery, receive 30 years. And... Uh, but after I went to prison, I realized that sometimes God will place you in a position to secure you. I honestly believe had I not went to prison, I wouldn't be living 2019. I think that God placed me in prison first for me to get to know him hmm. and to find out my purpose in my life. Hmm. The thing that he, I want to piggyback off what he said about at young age, what I notice in the prison system now, a lot of the youth offenders are getting locked up with the adult offenders. Mm -hmm. Mistake. Mistake in Mississippi. Mistake in the state. These kids that go in, maybe petty crime, drug, first time drug offenses or whatever, when they get stuck in with these adult offenders, they're getting trained by these adult offenders how to be real criminals. Mm -hmm. And some of them go to uh, prison for, I don't want to say minor crimes, but for crimes that they probably could get paroled on easier because these adult criminals are teaching them how to be real criminals when they get out. So I think a lot of what we need to revisit in our state is not putting the youth offenders mm -hmm. in with the adult offenders. I heard somebody explain it recently as saying, they said, uh, jail is like the community college of crime. Prison is like the university of mm -hmm. crime. Amen. Well said. 
You I just agree. learn. You learn more. You learn more. creative ways to commit crimes, mm-hmm. and and you come out and you have no. Now you have a criminal record, and you have a hard time getting a job, and now you've learned all of these bad skills right. of, of how to commit crimes, and now you know we want you. To, to get back to a productive life, but that just isn't what people are often set up to do. Right. They're set up to be, become, you know, more career uh, offenders right. um, for lack of right. uh, options. So what are some of the obstacles that you guys faced when you came out of prison? For me, it was, it, I was a church girl. So for me, when I came out, I looked for the church. Hmm. And the church was not there. Hmm. The same people that came in was preaching and sharing the love of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God. (laughs) When that gate opened, they weren't there. And I went to a church, and there was a member, and that member wanted it to be known that she was a parole officer and that she believed if people violated, you went back to prison. Well, that's been 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Once a convict, always a convict. Now they have nice names. You are a returning citizen. You're a credible messenger. You have somewhat dignity to your name when you come out. I didn't have that advantage 30 years ago, so the church was really disappointing to me. That was one big obstacle, and the other was housing and employment. And during the time when I was an inmate, we were allowed to work and make some money so I was allowed I was able to work in prison save some money and had a jump start when I got out because I feared not I didn't know what not working was I'm the oldest of 11 we didn't have a choice but to work my grandmother didn't believe in idleness you had to be cooking cleaning sewing doing something at all times uh but I was fortunate enough eventually to get a job and worked at a medical clinic for 27 years. I was hired in as a maid, and but those were the big obstacles for me. The church number, the absence of the church. Explain that when you say the absence of the church. Is it you felt like because you had come out of prison there, was it the stigma of them? Uh, you felt like there was a not wanting to associate or just a, a lack of support for understanding the the obstacles that you were facing trying to find a job and housing? What specifically is it that you're referring to when you say the the absence of the church? The absence of the church, they weren't a resource. They weren't friendly at the gate to welcome you back into the community. And And I've learned that most churches, they know how to preach the Bible or teach the word. They don't know how to help you reintegrate into society. They weren't ex offender friendly. And 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 a lot of it is probably because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Or didn't and so a part of the reforming in the criminal justice system needs to include the church and what their role needs to be or should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. It helps clarify that. You still work a lot in um, prison ministry today. In fact, yesterday I had emailed you some um, info about today's meeting, and you emailed me back last night and said, hey, I'm sorry I didn't get this. I was in the prison all day, and you're not allowed to have technology you know, right. in the prison with you. So you guys are still very involved, very in, involved. in the prisons, working mm-hmm. with people as well as um, when they come back out. But what is prison like today? It's the same. Not a whole lot has changed. They had, uh, thank God, the new superintendent, well, he's going into his sixth year at Central Mississippi Correctional Facility, in particular the one I go in the most, uh, has started to reincorporate programming that used to be there 
when I was an inmate, a lot of the programming uh, by a former commissioner was stopped where they could build, do woodwork and make goods and sell pretty much like they have at the Angola prison. They had a lot of it at Central, and they're starting to reincorporate some of that, which is a plus, uh, giving them some dignity back, making them feel human um, is, is a big thing that's helping with the prison now. But a lot of the conditions and living conditions still need to be worked on. Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a hard part for people that have never kind of been connected to it to understand. I, I think I always thought, um, you know, you got people in cells and you've got guards walking back and forth in front of the cells. Just whatever I saw on TV is what I assumed prison was like. And so in my mind, I thought, how could you have vi- how could you have inmate violence in prison? How could you have uh, you know abuses and things like that? Um, help us understand how that how that happens. How is the experience of prison so traumatic, so different maybe from what we see on TV is kind of the TV version of prison. Prison itself is another world, I think, inside of a world. And it has different, it has different uh, rules of life in prison. Uh, to me, prison is like a warehouse and where society send those that they feel as though it's not fit for society. And they place them in an environment, but they never try to rehabilitate them. They just house them. Hmm. And if you don't rehabilitate a person and you house a person, and the only thing the person have experienced is bitterness and, and hatred for the last 15 or 20 years, when he's released, what would he be able to pour out what's been poured into him? And I think that until we, until the, the system itself Understand that, uh, I, I think Miles Monroe once said that if God has the power to make a man, then God has the power to change a man. Change comes from within. The system can't change you. It's a known fact. They can house you until a period of time is over, but the change has to come from within. And I think that until they deal with the inner man, the way that some of the system is set up now, you got maximum security. They stay in the cell 23 out of 24 hours a day. There is no visibility of an officer or anybody walking up the hall because they literally in their own individual cell, you know, whatever the dimensions is of that cell. Whereas the inmates that are in general population are housed in like a dormitory style uh, where you go down a a hallway and you may have 50 or 60 beds on the right side and 50 or 60 on the left side where an officer sits in a tower and they watch you. And the shower unit is adjacent to the, the tower. But all they do is lay around. And a part of the system changing is there's no way you can humanly house somebody 23 years and expect the community to rehab them when they get out. It needs to happen on the inside with reforming the person, rehabilitating the inmate. If you allow an inmate to stay on their bunk, don't work, get up when they get ready, <laughs> they're not going to do a 9-to-5 job when they get out in the free world. Not going to happen. 
So a part of the rehab that needs to take place needs to be mandated through case management and everybody else. Because if you allow that behavior inside, then you can't put that burden on an employer inside and mandate that employer to pay $10 an hour, minimum wage or whatever. It's just unrealistic expectation on the employer to make this person work when they don't have an initiative to work. And that initiative has to come from within. And, and the case manager need to be able to work with everybody else on the outside to recommend this person uh, for the next step. One of the things I heard somebody mention recently is how difficult it is uh, in the general population, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, to get any kind of time to really like it, it gets always noisy, mm-hmm. which is, is something I had never thought about before. Always. I thought, oh, well, you you know, you can be reading in your cell, and in my mind, that's a quiet reading, and the thought of being with sixty people in the same room all the time, without the ability to 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 shut that off and to get away, just sounds like. For your mental health, it would be really difficult to function in that kind of constant, you know, it is. I don't know. That that's, sounds really tough. It's, re- it's one big open floor that's separated by a wall partition, and they're called zone, A, B, C, and D. Everybody has their own zone, but none of the zones are doored off. They're in an open floor separated by a wall partition. And it's actually two zones to one zone. You got the the A bed sleepers and the B bed sleepers in this big open space. Then you have your tables in the middle of that same zone with the cell f- with the phone right on the wall for uh, you to talk on the phone. So you're having to try to stop up your ear with one finger, listen to the person you're talking to on the phone. Because you're in the same room. Same room. And then an officer comes across the tower zone screaming above you being on the phone and everybody else on the zone with their noise. It used to be every TV used to be going with every, (laughs) until they mandated they had headphones on the television. Ah, interesting. So tell us about what the REACH Foundation does. You guys do a lot of different things. The REACH Foundation, we're getting more structured about what it is we actually wanted to do. Uh, should be doing it is prison ministry. When we first started, we were all over the place. Uh, but we do transitional housing primarily now to women that are not medically diagnosed with a mental illness coming out of prison. And it's not that we don't want to house those that have a diagnosed mental illness. We just don't want to recreate Whitfield. We already have institutions that are established to deal with that. Uh, we do transitional housing. We do ministry to children of prisoners. Uh, we do camps to children of prisoners. Um, and we actually do, uh, uh, we have a, uh, what well, more, Mississippi Offender Reentry Establishment. We've had more for years. There's another organization that has more now that does transitional housing. More for us is the program we do of mentoring, life skill training, soft skill training, GED classes, that type of thing. And we do that through our statewide initiative. So we got a lot going on. And what keeps you going in this after all these years of doing it? The importance of there are some people that probably I would have let out before I let myself out that are yet there. Hmm. The system needs reforming just that much. And I like the new initiative that Van Jones has going on about the Redemption Project. And I think this redemption project, 
will help more people get out or at least have a conversation, the victim and the criminal, uh, mm. having a face-to-face conversation. Not for forgiveness and they open the door and let everybody go free, but it, it helps the individual get to a place in their own personal heart or where they need to get to. Hmm. Fred, I, what keeps you going? I think that uh, the pain that prison, that I learned in prison or endured in prison, God took it once I was out of prison and he made it into my passion. I think that everybody deserves a second chance. And the scripture said, well, much is given, much is required in return. You're looking at two people, uh, Pauline and myself, that God has given us so much and allowed us uh, to be able to touch so many lives. And it's just our desire that we just continue to do what we can do while we can do it. And you've said before, Pauline, that... um People who have been incarcerated need to have a seat at the table when policy is being discussed related to incarceration, which I don't think we often think about. We can't think about the policymakers, make the policy. Um, explain to us that that passion for you. What well, you get to, as a former prisoner, I live with those prisoners. You get to see the behavior. You know, you can co- a prisoner can go before the parole board and put on your false face. They can go to church service and put on their religious face. They can go to school and put on their school face. But at the end of the day, when they get through going before all the different faces, you come back, you're in the zone. We, you with the real person that sees the real person. And seeing that real person apart from the church face, the school face, or whatever, you know that person, you've lived with them 24-7. You get to know the behavior and having offenders at the parole board when that person comes before you to be considered for parole or probation you have some insight that nobody has to give you and the same way with policy the person that was in prison knows better what they need when they come out of prison so a lot of what people do is give you the needs based on your professionalism what you learned in school I know it from experience And so you need the experience aspect and the educated person to come together to see how we can, from an experience and educational perspective, find a medium ground and to work together. That makes sense. You guys have a really unique approach to transitional housing, and you have had a 0% recidivism rate from your transitional housing um, that you do. Tell us about that. What do you do differently? We do it from a... The short version, we do it from a stewardship, S-T-E-W-A-R-D, ship versus ownership position. We steward the people in their thoughts and what do you think versus ownership, meaning we got a set of rules plastered on the wall saying you got to get up for breakfast at 5 and We could care less whether they eat breakfast or not. We could care less whether they eat dinner or not. If they're off work and don't have a job, if you want to take a nap, take a nap. That's real life. You got to transition them for what real life, what real living looks like. If, if, if we're in our own homes, if you want to take a nap and you don't have to go to work, take a nap. But most transitional homes, you, you can't get into bed by 6, 
that's not realistic. And a lot of them don't function well. They don't know what to do because they still pull between making a decision or not making a decision. So, uh, and that's the way we've done it for, for 30 years. But if you have a transitional home, halfway house, you have to have a set of rules on the wall saying do it A, B, C, C, D, E, F, G. Pretty much what you were saying is that we believe that uh, an awful person, when they first get out of prison, the first step is try to renew your mind, your way you're thinking. Because if you haven't been able to make decisions 10 or 15 years, and you, they, one day they decide that you're free, and I believe that a lot of times when people get incarcerated, the system itself has the power to lock you up physically, the body. The only person can lock your mind is yourself. They don't have that power to lock your mind. And a lot of times when people get incarcerated, if you go to prison in 1980, I went to prison in 1977. Okay, well, I allowed my mind to continue to grow because I was feeding myself knowledge from what I was reading that helped me equip for when I did get out. But a lot of people, they're stuck from the day that they got out of prison until the time that the key is released. In other words, if you get incarcerated in 1990 and you're not getting out until next year, for 20 years your mind been locked. Every person we deal with in transitional home, whatever year they went into prison, we go back and literally Google what was the latest everything, song, classical, rock, whatever. We find out what the latest was for every person that was incarcerated. What we do, what was their world like before they went into this new world of incarceration? And we deal with them from that perspective, right. from that year. Not the year they got out. We go back to the year of their incarceration. And I promise you, we found an alarming similarity of where their mind is and how they process. Hmm. From the lost, kind from of lost, the lost years of From prison. the lost years. So we go from the lost years and bring them up to the current year. Hmm. That's Whether that's technology or whatever. That is such a fascinating, um, and I love that kind of approach of saying we're, we're not going to, we don't own you. We're not going to take you from where prison owned all of your hmm. um, actions mm-hmm. throughout the day to now we own all of your actions throughout the day. But that's such we a different not, way to think about not. it of... We're going to steward you. We're going to help you learn how to steward your own life. Mm-hmm. So that when you leave, it's our, it's our desire and hope that every person that leaves when they had to transition a home, when they leave, we would like for them to have some type of bank account, a living place. We are able to provide different resources because we are in partnership with World Vision, mm-hmm. and we get a lot of supplies and, and just God has blessed us to be able to be a blessing to people once they get out. Uh, the young lady that's in New Orleans, we was able to to pretty much give her a lot of household items that we had acquired. So it's all it's about helping. Hmm. I can say I love you, but if I don't never show you, I'm, when I first met my wife, before she became my wife, she told me something that stuck with me. For the last 30 years, I told her that I loved her. And she told me she won't have to wait and see once I got out. <laughs> she said, because love is an action word. Love is what love does, not what it says. And I think a lot of times in the church, we always want to say love. But do we really love them? Are we really loving on the people? If someone wants to get involved in 
prison, uh, I would say prison ministry, and that's what you guys call it, but let's say somebody's not a Christian, but they still want to, uh, you know, help in some way in the prisons. How how can people, what's the first step for somebody to take to help either people who are currently in prison or their families or people coming back out? What, how would people take a step towards um, people who are in this situation? Connect with somebody that's already doing it. A lot of times people want to start something new and not collaborate, collaborate and partner with somebody who's already doing the work. You're already doing End It For Good. Connect with End It For Good. Find out what it is you need and take it from take it to the next level. There may be somebody who just want to do marketing. Well, they can do marketing for End It For Good. Whatever their perspective, because some people will never go into a prison. And it's not that they're not passionate about it. They just, that's not the area of prison ministry uh, that they need to be involved in or not the end of the drug world that they need to be involved in, but they can help you get to the next level through this. You need attorneys. You need whatever. So whatever area of expertise somebody want to get involved in, connect with people who are already doing it. You don't have to reinvent it. It's already there. That's great. So even for the REACH Foundation or for people listening that aren't from Mississippi or not from this area, there's people in your area all Mm -hmm. over the United States that have something going on helping people who are incarcerated or people, you know, reentering society. That's such a great point because we do often feel like we have to reinvent the wheel. Like, Mm -mm. gosh, you know, maybe I'll I'll start this thing. And no, just Mm -mm. go go to these people that have been doing it for 30 years. This is what I do. This is what I'm good at. Is there any way that I can be part of this? Even it doesn't have to be a full-time thing. It doesn't have to be a part-time thing. Just be, you know, hey, I'm I'm an attorney. If you ever find somebody that needs some help, I'd love to just step in and and help them. Right. uh, it's a lot easier maybe than we sometimes make it out to be. Right. Now, if it's 30 years and you don't see any results of an organization that's been around 30 years, that could be a sign. you got some churches that have been sitting in communities 40, 50, and 60 years, and they still have five members. That's not it. They need to take that Sunday school class and connect with somebody who's doing something. So don't connect just because they've been around 30 or 40 years. You want mm-hmm. to see... Action. Manifested results in action. That makes sense. Is there anything else you guys would like to share? I just thank you for having us, and I thank you for what you're doing. I believe in what you're doing. End it for good. The drug, the drug war is a serious one, and a part of the drug war is also a part of what I do with with, with crime. I had a brother who got was in a head-on collision accident had to have major hip surgery. The car went through him. He had to have surgery. He got addicted to prescription drugs. This was before the opioid crisis came about. And he ended up going to prison. He couldn't get on food stamps or whatever because he was a drug offender. He had gotten uh, uh, arrested for drugs because of that addiction. He ended up going to prison the second time and ended up dying in prison. And so the drug war is serious as well. And so, you know, my thing would be to people get involved. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. For coming in today and opening your life to us, uh, Pauline and Fred. You can check out more of their work at reachfoundationms.org. That reach is spelled R-E-C-H, no A in the middle. Uh, Reachfoundationms.org. Or you can email Pauline at reachpauline at gmail.com. 
Join us next week for a new episode. And in the meantime, you can join us on Facebook at End It For Good MS. We're pursuing drug policy that saves lives and helps more people improve their lives, including people who have been involved in the criminal justice system. Join us on that journey. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.